Welcome, Andrew Arrington. Thank you. Um, well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here, actually, and um, a real, real pleasure. Uh, many of you, well, actually, I hardly know anybody here, although I know some people, but it's, it's just great to be here, and I hope uh, we can think about some really important things tonight. Um, as Simon's already mentioned, the issue before us this evening, the issue of the reliability of the Gospels, is an important one. And it's important not, not just because... Um, these books in the New Testament, if you've got a, if you've got a, a Bible, you, I'll refer to it at different points, but you don't necessarily need one. But these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this section of the Bible, they're not just part of the historic record in the same way that the ancient Near Eastern texts of the Assyrian um, kings are part of the historical record. The Gospels, the question of the reliability of the Gospels is important at a whole other level because of their content, because of the man they speak about. You see, if the Gospels can be judged to be historically reliable, then it forces us to take Jesus seriously. Because if Jesus was anything like what the Gospels say he was like, then it has implications for all of us here today. But on the other hand, if the Gospels can be shown to be clearly unreliable, then Christian faith falls apart. This is actually one of the things that is different, that distinguishes Christian faith from other religions. Christianity is wedded to history, as we read about, in a way that makes it particularly vulnerable to attack at this point. But those who attack Christianity at the level of history, and uh, this is a growth industry, by the way, so if there's any career advisors out there, that's an option for people. But those who attack Christianity have to be prepared to accept that if their arguments are wrong, they may not be mistaken just about history. They may, in fact, be mistaken about God. So what I want to do this evening is to think about this issue of the reliability of the Gospels and to approach it by looking at three common criticisms of the historical value of the Gospels. Uh, because I think that looking at it in this way can help to focus the questions we're interested in. Okay, I have to click. There we go. Here's the first criticism I want us to look at. The Gospels were just made up by the church. Um, this is the first thing that we need to think about, the claim that, the, that, that these accounts of Jesus' life were just made up, invented by the Christian church. The French philosopher and critic of Christianity, Michel Onfray, puts it like this. Jesus' existence has not been historically established. No contemporary documentation of the event, no archaeological proof, nothing certain exists today to attest the, to the truth of a real presence at this meeting point. And so he claims, nothing of what remains can be trusted. The Christian archives are the result of ideological fabrication. Now, this claim is often held to be demonstrated by the existence of other Gospels that give us a different take on Jesus. You may have heard that claim, other Gospels. As Richard Dawkins puts it, the four Gospels that made it into the official canon were chosen more or less arbitrarily out of a larger sample of at least a dozen. And therefore, he argues, the only difference between the Da Vinci Code and the Gospels, sorry, it's a bit dated, but it's a great quote, 
is that the Gospels are ancient fiction while the Da Vinci Code is modern fiction. Ancient fiction, ideological fabrication. What truth is there in these assertions? Well, there are three things to think about. First, there is the claim about the possible non-existence of Jesus. Now, at one level, of course, everything that happened in the past is open to doubt. Jesus may not have existed in the same way as Julius Caesar might not have existed and in the same way that you might not exist. But if we take away that perhaps philosophically interesting but really a bit silly level of argument, and if we actually weigh the historical evidence, there is no real doubt that Jesus existed. Quite apart from the Gospels themselves, there are a number of reliable independent sources, especially including the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus, that attest to Jesus' existence and his execution under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Here's Tacitus. Um, I won't read that quote, but you can, you can, because I can't quite see it. Now I can. The key bit is in the middle where he talks about Christians, and he says the founder of this name, Christ, had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. He goes on to talk about Christianity. Tacitus clearly uh, believed that Jesus was a historical figure, has no trouble reporting it. Um, the other really significant, one of the other really significant uh, pieces of evidence is the evidence of Josephus in Jewish antiquities. Um, here's the less famous passage, but it's at least as significant. And Josephus refers to James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. Now, this is where Josephus actually tells us a little bit more about this. And these references and others like them have led almost all serious scholars to accept Jesus' existence. And in this respect, Michel Onfray's claim is, in fact, bizarre and perhaps dishonest. The Gospels clearly were not made up in the same way, say, Harry Potter was made up. There was a real Jesus. There was no real Harry Potter. Second, though, what about these other Gospels? Are there alternative takes on Jesus that show that the Bible Gospels are just a church fraud? Well, there certainly are other Gospels. But contrary to what is sometimes alleged, they haven't been hidden or suppressed or anything like that. You can get them from Amazon in paperback, very cheap. $14 will get you a copy of all the other Gospels. You can read them to your heart's intent. Content. And mostly when people talk about these other Gospels, they're talking about a number of texts that were discovered at a place called Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1945. And that was very exciting and mysterious and, wow, all these other texts turned up. It's simply mistaken, though, to say that these writings stand alongside the Bible Gospels as equals. In fact, very few serious historians treat them that way. Almost all of them are the products of a social and religious movement known as Gnosticism, which flourished in the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. And the philosophical agenda of this movement is just stamped all over them. And in contrast to them, the Gospels in the Bible actually look very good as historical documents. For one thing, they clearly date from much earlier on. Most scholars date Matthew, Mark and Luke to within about 30 to 40 years of Jesus and John maybe 10 or 20 years after that. 
And furthermore, the, the Gospels in the Bible are clearly utilising traditions that go back even earlier and include eyewitness testimony. To put it simply, the Bible Gospels are in a whole different league, historically speaking, from the Gnostic Gospels like Thomas and Mary and so on. Um, if you want to see the contrast, I recommend that you just read some of the, the other Gospels. Uh, they are very good examples, it seems to me, of what ideological fabrications look like. But even so, all that aside, how do we know that the Bible Gospels weren't invented? Well, let me give you three quick pieces of evidence that, to my mind, make this spectacularly unlikely. First, everything we know about the authors makes it unlikely that the Gospels were made up. They were Christians, which means that, amongst other things, this may seem like a silly point, but it's quite an important point, they were committed to telling the truth. Furthermore, they had a Jewish background, which meant that of all the religions, history was particularly important to them. More importantly, none of them profited from what they wrote. In fact, many of the early Christian leaders were killed for what they said had happened to Jesus. It simply does not look like an ideological power play. Second, the Gospels contain many details that support their genuineness. Uh, that is, things that are not the kind of things you make up. Historians call this the criterion of embarrassment, pieces of evidence that you can't really imagine somebody make, making up. Examples include moments where Jesus does things or said things which are kind of awkward for later Christian theology. Um, or when Peter is portrayed in the Gospels as a bit of a disaster and he went on to lead the church. It's not the kind of thing that you can imagine Peter and his associates getting together to put together. Uh, another well-known example is the really important place of uh, female witnesses to some of the crucial events in the gospel, particularly the burial of Jesus and the resurrection. Now, we don't care about that at all, and rightly so, but in the first century, that was quite an embarrassing detail because there's evidence that women's testimony was not legally admissible. And so my point is that this is not the kind of detail somebody invents. Finally, when you compare the Gospels to one another, they're just not neat enough to be a conspiracy. As is well known, the Gospels tell the story of Jesus differently. And at many points, they don't easily match up. Now, this raises questions about accuracy, and we'll get to them in a second. But for now, we should just see that this makes it hard to believe that it was all a hoax. If they'd wanted to do a hoax, they could have done it a lot better. Okay, so the Gospels were not just made up. Don't get sucked into that. You can't just write the Gospels off as ideological fabrications. Like it or not, we're dealing with history of some kind. But what kind of history? And in particular, is it any good? The next criticism I want us to have a look at is the idea that the Gospels are historically inaccurate, that you can't really trust them to get the facts straight. Richard Dawkins puts it like this, although Jesus probably existed, he concedes, reputable biblical scholars do not in general regard the New Testament as a reliable record of what actually happened in history. 
Now, at a surface level, I think this claim is simply wrong. There are, in fact, plenty of reputable biblical scholars who think precisely that the New Testament is a reliable record of historical events. But putting that aside, the idea that, sure, Jesus might have existed, but he was probably nothing like the character in the Gospels, this idea can be maintained for two quite different reasons. First, it's sometimes argued that the Gospels have been distorted over time so that what we have now is not the same as was in the original documents. Second, it is argued that the original documents themselves are plainly unreliable, as at numerous points they present problems and contradict each other. Well, what shall we make of these claims? We can answer the first claim about transmission actually very quickly. The fact is that we know a great deal about the transmission of the text of the Gospels, and what we know should give us great confidence that the original text was substantially what you now find in a modern Greek New Testament, which is what our English Bibles are based on. Now, there are, to be sure, points at which we can't be completely certain about what the original text was. If you want a good example, turn to the very end of Mark's Gospel. We're not going to look at it now, but um, it's a good moment where you can see that the text is a little bit uncertain. But these examples are quite small. And on the whole, we basically know what the original text was. In fact, we're better off today than we ever have been before. More and more fragments of manuscripts have been discovered over the last 200 years. So that the science of text criticism has a lot of data now to work with. But the basic message is this. What you read in a modern Bible is a translation of what was almost entirely the original text of the Gospels. Okay, that's the first claim. But what about the second claim? What do we do with the idea that problems and contradictions in the original documents show them to be historically inaccurate? Well, we need to be honest. There certainly are problems with the Gospels. For example, there are some points at which it's hard to reconcile what, we, what they say with what we know from elsewhere, such as uh, in the Gospel of Luke, the dating of the census that led Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem. It's a problem. We don't quite know how to resolve it. However, I think a fair assessment of these problems shows that they are far from sufficient to bring down negative judgment on the reliability of the Gospels. Um, if you want to talk about the census, we can. I'm sure there's many of you desperate to do that. But it shouldn't be forgotten, uh, firstly, that the Gospels frequently match up with what we know of the details of the period. At many, many points, for example, the historical accuracy of Luke's account has been vindicated. Um, Archaeology has also confirmed many details in the Gospels. Uh, a good example was the discovery in 1888 of the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, uh, which was found to match exactly the description in John's Gospel in chapter 5. Uh, that was important because before that, people had ridiculed John and said that pool doesn't exist, but then they found it. And see, on the whole, the Gospels clearly reflect an accurate and on-the-ground knowledge of the place and people they're describing. Now, all of this, of course, accords with the consistent claim of the Gospels themselves that they are describing what really happened 
on the basis of reliable traditions and accurate eyewitness testimony. But this is not to say that the Gospels are mere history, simple compendia of facts about Jesus. Um, Here we need to make sure we know what the Gospels are. Uh, In fact, this question is actually one of the few points scholars have reached some agreement on uh, when they think about what, what genre are the Gospels originally written in. Um, And the consensus for the last two decades or so has been that the the Gospels basically fit within the genre of the Greco-Roman biography or life. And what this means is that the Gospels are literary works designed to paint a picture of a person, not just to record bare historical data. They are kind of stylized portraits of a life. Now, this is an important point, so let me give you an analogy to explain what I'm talking about. Here are two portraits of the painter Margaret Olley, who uh, sadly died a a year ago, I think. Um, Sorry, one portrait and one photo. Okay? The photo is the one on your left. The the portrait is the one that won the Archibald Prize uh, two years ago. Now, if I were to ask you which is the better picture of Margaret Ollie? It's kind of a stupid question. Because it depends what you want the picture for. See, at one level, sure, the photo is you know, more accurate, you can see more detail or something. But at another level, the portrait is a much better picture. Because it tells you, it, 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 it gives you a sense of the person. Um, and it shows you things that you can't get from just a a photo. Now, it's just an analogy, but I think it's much better to understand the Gospels as like portraits than like photographs, okay? In fact, photographs are impossible in history anyway, but the Gospels are portraits of Jesus. Um, And understanding this is actually really helpful when it comes to things like the contradictions between the accounts. Although, on the whole, and it's worth remembering this, the Gospels actually exhibit remarkable agreement about the details of Jesus' life, there are indeed points at which the Gospel accounts are a bit tricky to fit together. Um, If you want an example, just get a few of the Gospels and read the parallel stories side by side, and you'll find some, some of the kind of things we're talking about. When we come to these points, though, it's vital to keep the literary nature, the kind of portrait nature of the Gospels in mind. Because many differences simply have to do with stylistic choices, decisions to rephrase things, to tell a story in a particular way, to paint the eye like this, to leave certain things out because they're not important. For example, um, Matthew and Luke record a number of very similar sayings of Jesus, uh, probably in fact both had access to a common source, but they record them in different contexts. Matthew's entire gospel is structured around five big speeches made by Jesus, whereas in Luke, many of the elements in these speeches appear at different places in the narrative. Now, it's clear that Matthew at least had literary reasons for doing this. Um, And so he may well actually have rearranged the material. I think that's highly likely. Does this represent a historical problem? 
Well, yes and no. On the one hand, it probably means that we can't be completely sure exactly when and where Jesus said some of those things. But on the other hand, and far more significantly, we certainly can be confident that he really said them. In fact, much more confident than if we just had Matthew or Luke alone. Um, These points where the Gospels tell the story differently do not destroy their value as history. That's actually a a naive view of historiography. They just mean we need to read carefully and pay attention to their genre, their literary character. The Gospels are good history. They're probably not exactly what we'd like to have. It would be great if somebody had been there the whole time videotaping everything Jesus had said and did. That would be wonderful. Although the form would probably be on beta or something, so he couldn't watch it. But history's not like that, okay? What, what we do have, though, is something really great. Four portraits of Jesus' life that give every impression of being based on good, reliable information and which, on the whole, fit together very well. And so the claim that the real Jesus might have looked completely different from the Jesus of the Gospels is just nonsense. Okay, well, that's the first two criticisms. But finally, I want to look at a third common idea about the Gospels and history that mostly works a bit below the surface and is rarely stated explicitly, but that I think is perhaps the most important. It's the idea that we can't take the gospel seriously as history because they're religious texts. Um, What do I mean by this? Well, as soon as you open one of the gospels, it becomes obvious that they're neither neutral nor what we'd normally expect from history. Uh, Let me give you two examples. The gospel of Mark begins with these words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's not kind of just recording bare facts. Um, Similarly, the Gospel of John concludes like this. Jesus did many other things in the presence, signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. These are clearly both highly religious and highly biased documents. Mark and John both believe in God and quite like him. Now, we instinctively react against the idea that this kind of thing could be history. And this is because we have assumptions about what history should be like. In particular, we assume that history should be impartial and that it should be naturalistic. History, that is, shouldn't deal in the supernatural let alone be in favour of it. The Gospels are biased religious texts, so they can't be good history. But is this idea actually true? Or have we been led astray by our assumptions? We need to distinguish the two issues. First, the bias of the Gospels, and second, their religiousness. Let's start with the issue of bias. Bias is not always bad. In fact, neutral and impartial perspectives are actually highly problematic, as I'm sure many of you are aware. Um, This is a celebrated kind of tenet of recent philosophy, and it is a good one. 
There is no view from nowhere, especially when it comes to moral and spiritual questions. Everybody's coming from somewhere. And people who claim to be neutral are very often either hiding their real agenda or just unaware of it. But more than this, bias can actually be a helpful thing. Just because someone is a supporter of something, it doesn't mean they will always be unreliable. In fact, supporters can often give you a perspective on something you can't get otherwise, uh, an, an inside look at things. Um, just pretend, for example, that I'm passionate about netball. I'm not, but pretend. And my interest in netball, my bias, will certainly affect the way that I talk about it. I will probably give you the impression that it is an interesting sport, for instance. Um, sorry if there's netball people there, I just had to pick on something. But it will also quite possibly mean I'm better informed about it than most people, won't it? In fact, as a fan, I'm far more likely to know the rules and ideas of the game than someone who's not interested. Now, in a way, in a very roundabout way, it's similar with the Gospels. When we read them, we have to be aware that they see things from a particular viewpoint. Their authors were biased towards Jesus. And they don't, they don't pretend about that, nor should we. But that doesn't mean they won't contain good information. That would be like saying that if I'm a fan of netball, I can't be trusted on the question of where the wing attack can go. Rather, we need to ask whether it is likely that the bias of the gospel authors would have led them to distort history. And I believe, in fact, that the opposite is true. There are reasons to think that the gospel author's enthusiasm about Jesus made them more interested, interested in reporting things accurately. Okay, so that's bias. But what about the second issue, the religiousness of the gospels? And this is where we'll finish. This is tricky because religion and history don't naturally go together for us. The idea that the truth of any one religion could depend on whether certain things happened, that can seem frankly bizarre. The concept of God being involved in actual events is absurd. Most people today, if they believe in God at all, certainly do not expect him to turn up for breakfast. The problem is, though, that that is exactly, literally for breakfast, what the gospel writers claimed happened with Jesus. According to them, Jesus did and said things which defied all expectations and were so radical they could only be explained as somehow the works of God. And according to them, the history they recorded was one in which God was involved. Uh, the historian I mentioned before, Richard Borkham, he puts it this way in a different book, uh, his big book on the Gospels. In the case of the history of Jesus as these witnesses perceived it, the unique uniqueness, he knows that's a silly thing to say, but he's saying it to stress the point, of the events is properly theological. That is, it demands reference to God. There is no adequate way of telling the story without reference to God. For the uniqueness of what God does in this history is what makes it the unique and particular history it is. That is, these historical events were theological or religious precisely in their historicalness. 
So that the only way to do good history here is to speak about God. And this is what makes the question of the Gospels genuinely difficult. Whoop, I'll get there in a sec. Because the Gospels all claim loud and clear to be dealing with a history in which God was directly involved. This is bound to make them unlike other stuff. The Gospel writers are adamant, you see, that these were unique events of literally world-altering significance. Now let me conclude with an example of the kind of thing we're talking about, uh, taken almost at random from Luke's Gospel. It's a story of Jesus from Luke chapter 7. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has arisen amongst us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, if you're coming at the Gospels with the assumption that there is no God and that religious stuff is pretty silly, then you obviously won't be predisposed towards trusting an account like this. But let me ask you, if that's you, if you had been there and had seen this, assuming for the moment that it did happen, what would you have done? If you had had to write a report of it for a newspaper, what would you have written? It seems to me that the Gospels are precisely the kind of historical literature we should expect if this kind of thing really did happen. These are not the kind of events, you see, you can simply observe and be objective about in the sense of remaining uncommitted and detached. Jesus did not allow people to respond like that. The Gospels, I think, reflect precisely the tone we should expect if these events really occurred, a kind of astonished, excited, enthusiastic wonder at what was happening. And I think we're foolish if we hold that against them. So, don't dismiss the Gospels on the grounds that religious stuff can't be true. That would not actually be a historically motivated decision at all. Rather, it would be a refusal to, to move out of a closed position where your presuppositions about the world can never be questioned. The whole reason for the Gospels, at least according to their authors, is that something has happened in history that should unsettle all our assumptions and challenge us to rethink our most basic ideas. A man called Jesus turned up who made a whole lot of people change their minds about life and the world and God. There are very good reasons to think that the Gospels are talking about things that really happened. They can't just be dismissed as unhistorical. That doesn't make them easy to believe, 
but it does mean we should all read them and take them seriously. And that's what I want to finish by urging you all to do. Thank you.